All right, we are back. Episode 50. That's right. Episode 50, Global wow. Perspective. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett. And this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Episode 50, Yos. Congrats, man. How's it going? There's like, you know, the proverbial confetti going down in my head. There's like all sorts. This is a celebration and uh, it's appropriate. I feel like we've been off for a while uh, since ISSCR. It's been like a mini vacation for us. Uh, what do you, how was your vacation? It has been. <laughs> yeah. It really has. I, ha- I actually did go away for a couple weeks, so I got recharged. Uh, we, you know, went, went away to the beach with the family, had a, had a good time, relaxed while we were still delivering good content to the podcasting audience. I hope everybody, uh, got to listen to the, uh, ISSCR episodes and heard, uh, you know, stem cell stories from other people than Yosef and I and our guests. We, uh, you know, had, I thought it were uh, some really great content. I got, you know, we got some comments from people saying, you know, exactly that really great content. Uh, thanks for doing that. So, um, we were able to get a little, uh, vacation or get away for a bit, but also deliver, uh, good content. And we've made it to 50 episodes, which is a real big accomplishment for Yosef and I, who wanted to start this podcast as something we thought would be fun and informative, but never really could imagine it going like this and taking off to where it has. Um, and, you know, I want to thank Yos, uh, who's uh, across the way there for, for doing this with me and putting in the time. Uh, I want to thank, uh, you know, um, ISSCR for coming in and, and helping us out. Uh, they are the official uh, partner of the podcast and official podcast of ISSCR, the Stem Cell Podcast. I want to thank Thermo Fisher, uh, one of our sponsors who's there with us from the beginning that's helped to make, continue to make this podcast free. I want to now also thank and welcome Stem Cell Technologies, who's also coming to start sponsoring the show. We'll talk about that later. So there's a lot of people to thank, Yost, but I think we are going to continue to do this and continue to grow the show and take it somewhere where where it could, you know, no limits. Yeah, I'd like to thank you as well and uh, your brother, uh, Anthony, our uh, silent partner out there and uh, without whom none of this could be possible. So uh, with that said, uh, all our announcements are pretty much done, right? we got a big guest here. Yeah, we got a big guest today. We, yeah. For the cells to commemorate our 50th episode, we have Dr. George Daly. Uh, he is a stem cell researcher, physician extraordinaire. And we call this episode Global Perspective because uh, we, we, we go through a potpourri of things with George. Uh, and we touch on a little bit about his work, but we talk about more 30,000 foot things in stem cell research, where we're going, where the field is, and things like that. So it's a little more of a global perspective. We figured we would do that with George since he has that perspective. He's been in the field for a long time, one of the leaders. So we did that a bit with George. Um, so we're the official podcast of the ISSCR. You can check them out at ISSCR.org. Uh, their meeting, like I said, was in Sweden. You guys heard. Next year it'll be in San Fran. Um, so uh, let's see. We have um, I, just one more announcement. I think in the fall, Yosef, we talked about this with Anthony, and I think what we're going to do for the audience is we are going to launch a, a forum on the website. It's going to be a very detailed and interactive forum where people can log in. You can get a username. You can go on, and you can talk about all things stem cell research. We're going to have topics posted. We're going to have people moderating it. So we're going to put papers up, and we want people to come on and talk about the papers. We're going to bring up topics that people can weigh in, things on the show. You can go on and have a live and actual discussion with other people in the field, technical problems. My, my reagents aren't working. You can go on there. You can talk about it and interact with other scientists. And if you're not sci- a scientist, you can go on, and you can read about uh, what scientists and other people think about different types of papers and discoveries. So we're really excited about this. We're going to launch it somewhere in the fall. We'll keep you more uh, 
uh, posted of when we do that. And uh, I think that'll be really exciting and, and another good way to give good content to the uh, to the audience. Yeah, it'd be cool if we could shout out some trends too. Like, uh, look at this paper's trending right now on the forum. <laughs> get yeah, some, exactly. Uh, it get, it. It's more of an outlet for Yosef and I to do things right away. Like, if we see something and we want to talk about it, we don't have to just you know our shows are limited to twice a month. We can just put it right out in the forum. So it'll be a, you can access it whenever you want. And I'll, uh, again, we'll let you know when that is. So we've been away from the roundup for a bit so we're going to get back into the uh science roundup that's sponsored and brought to you by thermo fisher um like i said thermo's been with us from the beginning they were at isscr uh promoting all their products for stem cell research um you can go and read more about what they offer for stem cells um you can go to lifetechnologies.com slash differentiation to read about their differentiation products and you can google them you can go on stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner um, you can go to stemcellpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter. You're going to get all of our information when the episodes come out, all of the papers we talk about. It's all right there. You just have to sign up. You get one email every two weeks. That's it. We won't bother you. Go sign up there. Go to uh, go to Thermos website. Check out their products. And I will now turn it over to my partner in crime, Yosef. What do you got, man? Well, since we left, uh, we went to Pluto, dude. How amazing was that? And we, we did go to Pluto. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the U.S. is the first country now to visit uh, or take photos of every planet in the solar system. So that's pretty cool. And it was, you know, for only $700 million. It took 10 years and about, you know, I think it was like 3 billion miles. But uh, we eventually got there and uh, we flew by and took some awesome images. So uh, kudos for that, especially $700 million. That's like the fraction of an aircraft carrier. So I'm all for that um so also in the news uh recently was that uh there was an ebola vaccine uh the initial results you remember last year around this time ebola was like everywhere um yeah and we're like thinking they were gonna get it on the subway and everything yeah yeah and uh now it's like uh there's an ebola vaccine and uh the initial results from the trial are pretty phenomenal uh so they tested a merc and a new link Genetics VSV Zebov vaccine, Zebov, I guess, um, which stands for Ebola vaccine. So, uh, it on they did about 4,000 people they tested on who had been in close contact with a confirmed Ebola case, and it showed 100% protection after 10 days. So, uh, wow, yeah, pretty impressive. Don't you um, think that's kind of like you know, like people are going to be like, well, where's these other things like, you know, cancer and AIDS and this thing. There's an, there's an Ebola epidemic. People are dying left and right now that happens and it affects Americans. And all of a sudden we have something that fixes it. I mean, is this a coincidence or what? I don't know, but that just shows what fast tracking can do within a year. I guess we've so. got, You're you right. know, it's an amazing, uh, well, feat, good so. for them. Uh, moving on, there was a nature paper where they engineered an artificial ribosome. Did you see this? It was, a. it's called ribo dash T. So ribo T, it has subunits that don't separate like a natural ribosome does and uh it's capable of making enough protein in bacterial cells that actually lack a natural ribosome to keep them alive so uh you can find that over in nature um there was a nature communication study showing a link between intestinal bacteria and induced anxiety and depression so what they did is they yeah you know me and the bacteria so they uh stressed out newborn mice by removing them from their moms for three hours each day from day three to 21 uh, of newborn mice and uh so the mice displayed anxiety and depression like behavior with normal levels uh abnormal levels of stress hormone corticost 
testosterone. So they repeated the same experiment in germ-free conditions. So they, they didn't have the same bacteria, uh, intestinal bacteria content. And they found that the absence of bacteria in mice that maternally separated, they still have altered stress hormone levels and dysfunction, but they behave similar to control mice that did not show any signs of anxiety or depression. So, um, but next they gave the bacteria from the control mice to the germ-free, maternally separated mice. And after several weeks, they started exhibiting uh, anxiety like depression and, and depression. So, um, but if they transferred the bacteria from stressed mice into non-stressed germ-free mice, no abnormalities are observed. So it's sort of like they they need to be there for the effect to happen, but they alone cannot make it happen. Does that make sense? Uh, they're yeah, sort of a sense. facilitator of the whole process. So you can find that in nature communications. Uh, there was a chemical census uh, study uh, uh, identifying the six taste sense. So as you know, there's bitter, salty, sour, sweet, and umami, which is that weird MSG uh, flavor, which I don't, I don't even know what umami tastes like, to be honest, but <laughs> <laughs> I know people add it uh, to uh, all sorts of Chinese food. So now there's uh, the sixth sense, which is a fat sense or what they call the non-esterified fatty acids or NIFA. So uh, they showed that medium and long chain NIFA or non-esterified fatty acids have a distinct taste, although uh, there is some overlap with the umami. So the taste of fat is this... um, is this new sense. And uh, they also showed that short chain non-esterified fatty acids are similar to the sour sense. So it's this these long, long chain uh, fatty acids that give this sort of taste of fat. So I don't know if you saw that six sense. Fat. Yeah, <laughs> it's a fat taste. It's similar to umami, but um, I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, I always get fat and umami mixed up when I bite into something. So it's good to know that there's a center there that's differentiating the two. Yeah. Um, so there was a PLOS-1 study. Uh, so they looked at uh, diabetic patients taking a drug called glitazone. glitazone and uh, it's an anti-diabetic drug that uh, the, the patients had a 28% lower incidence of Parkinson's disease than people taking other uh, treatments for diabetes. So this class of drugs uh, activates the peri- peroxisome proliferation activated gamma receptor, or PPAR gamma, as you probably know it, uh, which leads yeah. to reduced insulin uh, resistance. So uh, this receptor has a lot of many, like many other functions, but this was the first study to show uh, it, it's, this has been shown before uh, in rodents, but this is the first one to be shown in uh, humans that uh, this drug can uh, lower the uh, incidence of Parkinson's disease. Uh, so that was in patients uh, taking the drug. So you can find that in PLOS1. Um, there was uh, another PLOS. Uh, there was one, sorry, no, this is a paper in Neuron and three papers in cell reports from the Eric Kandel. You know, he's like the god of neuroscience. You're killing he's, it, Eric. How old is that man? He's like a hundred years old. <laughs> and he's still just like, uh, it's amazing <laughs> how he's just doing it. I think he's in his 80s, but still, he's just so prolific. Uh, so, uh, so he showed uh, that 
you know prions or prions? I, I still don't know which one. I, I'm going to say prions. I say prion, tomato, right. tomato. Yeah, yeah. So prions are critical. He's showing that prions are critical for maintaining long-term memories in mice. So they knocked out the mouse gene for functional prions called CPEB3 and found that uh, uh, two weeks after they knocked it out, a memory was made, the memory disappeared, and uh, the synapse collapsed without this functional prion gene. Uh, so like the disease-causing prions, like, you know, mad cow disease and all that Critzfeld-Jacob stuff, um, so they found that the like the disease-causing ones, the functional prions come in two varieties, both a soluble form and an aggregate form. And when we make a long-term memory and new synaptic connections are made, the soluble uh, prions are in the, those synapses are converted into aggregated prions. And this turns on protein synthesis that is ne- necessary to maintain the memory. So there is a similar uh, protein like this in humans. And uh, sumo inhibits this aggregation. So all these so he had three cell report papers and one neuron all in the same month uh describing this whole process. So uh you know prions yeah, aren't just you know it's not just a weird thing cascading protein folding miss you know just I can't think of a worse disease than uh, mad cow. You, just like your brain. I know, it just turns. eats away your brain. Yeah, so it, but there is a natural reason why we have prions in the brain. And that's really cool. It's for uh, memory. So uh, you can find that in all those variety of papers. I mean, it's going to be hard to link to, but uh, uh, there will be four publications for that. Um, there was a science paper of a supermassive black hole. This, the only reason why I cover this is because, you know, uh, galaxies have these, they're known to have like a black hole in the middle, like our galaxy does. But this supermassive one is rewriting the textbooks because normally, uh, that, lo- that black hole is about 0.2 to 0.5% of a galaxy's mass. This one's 10% of its mass. So this thing's like off the charts. It's like, you know, 10 to 20 times bigger than a normal black hole should be at the center of a galaxy. So, uh, and it was, it was formed in the early universe around 11.7 billion years ago. So 2 billion years after the big bang and it's a normal sized galaxy, but it's got this huge sinkhole in the middle. So, uh, you can find that in science. And, uh, finally, I'm going to talk about this cool, uh, pentaquark that was discovered at the large hadron large hadron collider so there's a physical review letters paper um uh, describing this new particle. Uh, so it was predicted in the 1960s, the pentaquark, and most significantly of all, uh, the discovery indicates that there may be a new type of matter, albeit one that lives for about a billion trillion trillionth of a second before it delay decays. Uh, so this pentaquark is made up of five quarks, which are the smallest particles that we know to exist. And uh, in different combinations, they produce larger particles. So for example, groups of three quarks are known as baryons, uh, which include that includes things like protons. So uh, this new, you know, uh, pentaquark is uh, the newest member of the family. There's a tetraquark and now there's the pentaquark. So uh, large hadron still producing mega data for the uh, physics world. Mega data, man. Mega data. So uh, yeah, that's it for me. How about you? I love mega data. I love any data, but mega data is great. No, thank you. So 
let's see what I got. So I'm going to go into uh, some of the stem cell stuff. I didn't know really where to begin because we missed so much time. So just to start to get a little more recent, um, there is this. Did you hear about this whole Planned Parenthood thing? Yeah, yeah. It made news a lot. So I guess there was a recent incident where Planned Parenthood was found to be offering fetal tissue to buyers without the parents' knowledge, and that raised like some serious ethical questions around the use of fetuses in stem cell research. I um, heard the whole government may shut down over this issue uh, coming up soon, that there this could potentially shut down the whole government because of this half a billion dollars of funding that goes to Planned Parenthood is such an issue. Right. Well, yeah. Right. So, like, the, the, the government provides funding, so taxpaying dollars goes into Planned Parenthood, which is, a, for some, already a touchy subject, right? And now they're finding out that they're selling this fetal tissue, um, but it's been fewer than five states provide the tissue. It's not illegal. They haven't done anything improper. They're saying they're not profiting from it. They're just covering their costs. Um, but did you, I don't know if you've seen that. It was like this anti-abortion group came out and have recorded these covertly recorded videos about this practice of the selling fetal tissue to try to make it show how devious and nasty and ugly it is. And so, like, there's been this. I got I I was called contacted by a, a, a media like a reporter who wanted me to ask, ask me questions about fetal tissue and stem cell research. Um, you know. The fetal tissue tis, the use in research, you know, is not a new idea. I mean, they've been working with fetal tissue since, like, the 30s. In fact, in 19, you know, the 1954 Nobel Prize was awarded uh, for work with fetal tissue that basically led to the vaccine against polio. Right. Uh, so the use of fetal tissue in research is not just with stem cells. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, it's used in uh, AIDS, muscular dystrophy, uh, spinal cord injuries. There's a lot of different things. And, you know, can you sell fetal tissue for profit? No. And there's a law against that. It's a felony. And, you know, I, wh- I, the reason why I'm talking about it in the stem cell podcast is because it, whenever you hear fetal tissue, it, it, it lumps into stem cell research for some reason. Um, and so it, it's become now, it's brought stem cells back into uh, this ethical debate arena. We, we'll, we'll ask George Daly a little bit about this because he's someone who speaks on the ethical concerns of it. Um, you know, we don't use uh, fetal tissue primarily as our source for cells. You can. Uh, you know, for my, my, it's not- my 2012 JCI paper, we needed fetal tissue to really complete the study and we had to outsource it to, you know, our, our collaborators in Sweden because the tissue is that hard to get as a researcher um, to, you know, confirm markers that are discovered through stem cells so it's it's not easy to get I'm, it, right it's not like right it's not like i could pick up the phone right now and order me some aborted fetus it doesn't work that right. way it's not like that at all it's very it's very regulated and it's very difficult to obtain unless you're in china or one of these countries where that happens a lot but in our country in the united states this is something that is not routinely done and in in this case of planned parenthood there was a very small number of organization affiliates that are doing it, and I imagine, I don't know if they're continued or not. Anyway, I'm bringing it up again because people who are hearing about this are attaching this to stem cells, and I want to make sure people understand that it is not uh, equal to stem cell research fetal tissue. It is not at all. You can get stem cells from fetal tissue, but you don't have to get have fetal tissue to get stem cells. So yeah. I just wanted to make sure we 
clarify that. You can read about that. It's all over the news. In the next uh, article I was reading uh, about stem cell stocks with promise. So one of the things that we wanted to do, and we're going to try to do it this year, I think we will do it this year, is to get uh, a finance guy. I know a guy who's a PhD who made a transition from bench to finance and um, hedge fund and stock analyzing and things like this. So I, I think that'd be a great thing for the audience. So this is an article talking about some stocks. Uh, let's see. They start with um, fate therapeutics. Uh, fate is the symbol. It's developing several small molecules that modulate. Um, uh, let's see mo- molecules that modulate umbilical stem cord stem cells. Mm-hmm. There's another one that says um, uh, here. Where'd it go? Okada Therapeutics, which is doing a therapy for uh, MacDegen and ophthalmology. There's Plori Stem PSTI, an Israeli-based biotherapeutic company. Uh, that takes shares have dropped 5% so far, but they expect a big second-half turnaround. And then there's Capricor, C-A-P-R, develops cardiovascular drugs. Uh, and their shares have been on a wild ride, surging from $4 a share in January to more than 10 in March. Uh, um, and they're moving to something from, for, with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So uh, just some, some different flavor from finance and stock things uh, that I know Yos is always interested in, so yeah. am I. Uh, let's see. Cell stem cell, there was a forum article. It says, from dish to bedside, lessons learned while translating findings from a stem cell model of disease to a clinical trial. Um, John McNeish and then Kevin Egan are on the line, among others, uh, Clifford Wolf. And basically, it's it's a forum discussion about where, you know, what, what the lessons have been learned so far about taking a stem cell uh, from the bench from a discovery into the clinic. I thought that might be interesting for people to understand because that's ultimately where we want to go. This was a published in, uh, how do you say this, Yos? Hepatology? You know, like mm. hepatocytes? Like yeah, the yeah. Field of that. Hepatology. Uh, they, it says scientists create functional liver cells from stem cells. We know that the liver is obviously important uh, in basically our metabolism. It breaks down all of this foreign stuff that comes in our body and clears us out. Um, and people who go under liver failure really have no way out and no way to come back. So this, they published this, this group is University of uh, Jerusalem, uh, reported the production of large amounts of functional liver cells from human ES and genetic engineered stem cells. Uh, and they, they, it's a revolution for the pharmaceutical drug discovery. Uh, so, you know, when you're testing drugs, you want to know how it affects the liver and they can do that with these, uh, functional liver cells. Um, so that's pretty cool. Let's see. Researchers create a model of early human heart development from stem cells. This is at the Gladstone Institute at UC Berkeley. They have uh, developed a template for growing beating cardiac tissue from stem cells, a system that could serve as a model for early heart development and a drug screening tool uh, to to make pregnancies safer. Uh, This was in Nature Communications. I think it's the first example illustrating the process of developing a human heart chamber in vitro. And will uh, technology could help to quickly screen for drugs to gener- likely generate uh, cardiac birth defects and guide decisions about uh, you know which drugs are dangerous during pregnancy. Mm. Um, though that was in NatureCom. This uh, paper stem cells could be used to treat mitochondrial disease. This was published in Nature. Just uh, published online in Nature recently. They generated human stem cells in the lab and repaired common mitochondrial de- defects and reported they were able to rescue the function. Uh, mitochondrial disease has no cure and no therapy addresses the uh, basically the, uh, the defects in mitochondria. Mitochondria is what do they call it? The powerhouse of the cell, Yost, yeah, right? It's, yeah. It produces most of the body's energy and performs main like a lot of vital functions. They contain their own DNA um, and a tiny fraction of all DNA in the body. And some 
mitochondrial disease can be fatal. There's one called Lay syndrome. And so this new study basically corrects the deficits with two approaches. They use IPS from patients, um, and then uh, they do some sort of uh, um, they do also do SCNT, which they use. Remember for uh, I should somatic cell nuclear transfer they use to create Dolly the sheep, uh, and so they use SCNT to completely replace the mitochondria in patient cells with those from a, uh, another person with healthy mutation free mitos. So um, just uh, an interesting. Uh, cool uh, kind of translational clinical study that was uh, not clinical but has clinical implications that was in Nature, uh, Mitochondrial Deficit Rescues. This is in cell stem cell, a single cell transcriptomic, uh, single cell transcriptomics. Transcriptomics is basically looking at all of the, the, the gene expression in the body, reveals a population of dormant neural stem cells that become activated upon brain injury. So dormant, meaning the cells are basically asleep. They're alive, but not doing anything. And this is saying that uh, upon brain injury, there is, uh, the, in the adult SVZ, or the subventricular zone, there are multiple states of act- activation. And so there's a dormancy. And then you can actually activate the cells, and that's associated with very high protein synthesis. And they talk about how they can use an interferon um, that activates... Uh, that activates these stem cells during an injury, a traumatic event, and hopefully those stem cells, when they become active, can produce cells that can prevent any further injury. So that's in cell stem cell. This is in next one, Nature Cell Bio. I got a couple more. Um, let's see here. There's a lot of authors on the line. Uh, Chad Cowan is the final author, uh, uh, the last author in a line. It's Generation of Vascular Endothelial and Smooth Muscle Cells from Pluripotent Stem Cells. And it's really just what the title says. They can get up the purification to 99% via surface markers uh, and be able to isolate vascular endothelium and smooth muscle cells, uh, which is obvious clinical applications. Uh, functional correction of large factor 8 gene chromosomal inversions in hemophilia using CRISPR and iPS cells. And this is in cell stem cell, Jinsu Kim. Uh, I guess hemophilia uh, is... Uh, X-linked genetic disorder caused by mutation. Hemophilia A, in this case, mm. is caused by mutations in this gene, which encodes the blood coagulation factor 8. Uh, and it says that almost half of these cases result from two gross chromosomal, chromosomal inversions. So what they did was they took a urine sample from patients. They reprogrammed that, those cells that they got in the urine. They, uh, inver- they basically correct the in- inversion, what they call a reversion, using CRISPR. Then they differentiated them to um, the endothelium, and then they put them back into hemophilic mice, and they're shown they're able to re- basically restore and basically functionally correct uh, this, this disease, this hemophilic disease, which I thought was very cool. That's amazing just to think of in the future that you could one day just pee in a cup and then get some stem cells back. That yeah, you just clean a your, cup, and then yeah. you can like, kind of fix your hemophilia. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Uh, and then lastly here, robust in vitro induction of human germ cell fate from pluripotent stem cells. Uh, Minatori Satu is uh, the final author, and Shinya Yamanaka is also on the line. Basically, um, mechanisms, you know, ger- generating germ cells, uh, you know, per- sperm, egg, uh, from from ES cells and pluripotent cells has kind of been elusive. So here they say uh, rebu- they get robust induction of these human PGCLCSs. I forget what the heck Primor- they stand for. Primordial germ cells, something. Uh, yeah, Prim- human primordial germ-like cells that, germ-like. Uh, that can be purified into the surface markers EPCAM and integrin alpha-6. 
Um, these and it's basically just providing a a kind of new um, a protocol to get these primordial germ cells to push down the lineage to get to human germ, making human germ cells in the dish, which is will be a, a very big feat in the field of reproduction and fertility and things like this. So this is in cell stem cell, um, and you can go on and and read it there. We will put all these articles up online, but now I think we should move to the uh, interview portion of the show, which, Yosef, we are happy to announce on episode 50. We have a, a sponsor, a new sponsor that will be with us for the next uh, six to eight, I think it's eight episodes or so. Uh, sponsoring the interview portion of the show, Stem Cell Technologies. So thank you to Stem Cell Technologies for coming aboard and uh, helping to support um, the the podcast. The uh, Stem Cell Technologies uh, has uh, a line of, of a lot of different products. I'm sure you all know about them. Joseph and I do. We use their um, we use them in the in the lab a lot. Um, in particular, um, they have a new. Um, they kind of have, have a new product uh, that's called Stem Diff Mesoderm Induction Medium, MIM. Remember MIMS, Yost? Remember that song by MIMS? Do you remember <laughs> yeah. what the name is? This is why it's hot. That's what yeah, I think yeah, of when yeah, I hear yeah, MIMS. Yeah, so that's funny. <laughs> if you order this media, MIM, you can sing This Is Why It's Hot when you're in the uh, culture dish. <laughs> that's funny. So basically this Stem Diff MIM, it's a media. You add it to pluripotent stem cells, and then that's it. You get mesoderm. Nice. Uh, and it's fairly robust. Um, and, uh, it, you know, mesodermal differentiation, I know from experience, is kind of wobbly. It can be in- inefficient. This should get rid of that. It should just make it more streamlined. And what Stem Cell Technologies has done for the audience, if you go to stemcell.com slash MIM, M-I-M, you can sign up. You can get a free sample. They'll send it to you. You can check it out. So thank you to Stem Technologies. You can go to there, check them out at stemcell.com. Uh, or we'll have a banner up on the website pretty soon. You can get more information there. So, Yost, what do you say? Should we bring George on? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, I, Yosef, I, I can't think of a better way to celebrate our 50th episode. I can't believe we have 50 episodes. Um, and also, a great transition from the ISSCR episodes that we just aired than to have a past ISSCR president and an internationally recognized physician and stem cell researcher to join us. Dr. George Daly as our guest today. I will give uh, George a proper intro, and then we will officially welcome to the show. So Dr. Daly is the uh, Samuel E. Lux, the, the fourth professor of hematology oncology, at the, <clears throat> excuse me, and the director of the stem cell transplantation program at Children's Hospital Boston. He's also a professor in the Department of Biological Chemistry and Molecular Pharmacology at Harvard Med School and an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, uh, associate director of the Children's Stem Cell Program and a member of the executive committee of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, past president of ISSCR, all of which were my former jobs, of course. Yeah. The, um, uh, the Daily Lab focuses on the stem cell biology, obviously with an emphasis on somatic cell reprogramming and hematopoietic differentiation of the blood lineage from human and mouse pluripotent stem cells and really common mechanisms in reprogramming in cancer. He's the recipient of numerous awards that I will not uh, go uh, mention. You can read about them online and Wikipedia. And he's an international leader in advocating for the responsible ethical oversight of human stem cell research. Dr. George Daly, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. So let's, let's start with a little context. Obviously, we're biased to stem cell researchers in our audience, but we do have non-scientists and non-stem cell scientists in the audience. So would you mind, George, just introducing yourself as a physician and, and, and scientist and how you really got into the world of stem cells? Sure. Um, I've been interested in stem cells for the better part of 30 years. I did my graduate training 
uh, at MIT as part of an MD-PhD program. I work with David Baltimore, who's uh, just a remarkable mentor. David had won the Nobel Prize for discovering reverse transcriptase. But at that time, I was interested in leukemia, and a rare leukemia called chronic myeloid leukemia that was driven by a chromosomal translocation. The work that I did at that time proved that the underlying genetic lesion, uh, the BCR-ABLE translocation, uh, was the driver of that leukemia. That leukemia affected blood stem cells, and that was my first introduction to stem cells. And really, over the last 30 years, uh, I've enjoyed a career that's seen stem cells come from something that was uh, a bit of a backwater to something now that is very exciting and prominent across all of biology. So my history really takes me from uh, a fundamentally clinical scenario, uh, leukemia, into what is now the realm of basic science, trying to understand how to harness stem cells for understanding disease and I hope one day to be able to apply it to the treatment of disease. And that's been my my history. Now, you're for everybody who, out there. I think you know when we hear stem cells, they say things like, well, "Where you know?" I get this now. We'll come back to this later, but I want to mention it now. You know where they say, "Where are the therapies?" Right? We hear about it. Where are they? In your clinical work, in especially in 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 in, in blood hematology, stem cell transplantation or stem cell therapy has been around and quite successful for some time. Can you just quickly just elaborate on that just so people understand that? Because I, I feel that people don't really recognize, I know it's called the bone marrow transplantation, now we know really it's stem cell transplantation. Can you just kind of highlight that for the audience and let them know that there is this remarkably successful stem cell therapy that is still going and has been going for some time? Absolutely. Yeah. I direct the pediatric stem cell transplant program at Children's Hospital in Dana-Farber. We take about 100 kids with uh, either malignancies of the blood-forming system, leukemias, lymphomas, or genetic diseases like sickle cell anemia or immune deficiency, and we replace their diseased bone marrow with healthy bone marrow. That's a process that involves the transplant of the blood stem cell, the hematopoietic stem cell. It's something which was introduced experimentally in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, became a standard of care, a curative standard of care uh, for patients with uh, leukemia in the, let's say, 80s. Uh, It won Don Thomas a Nobel Prize and is now something that is practiced in leading medical centers around the globe. The challenge, though, is that uh, despite decades of, of effort and research and uh, and many remarkable successes, we fail too often. Uh, you know, we're still losing a third to half of our patients, either because we don't treat the underlying disease well or because transplant itself has a lot of complications. Um, we have this problem of immune mismatch. We don't typically have ideal donors. Um, you know, the ideal donor is a patient's own cells. Right, right. Um, And when we have to use donors, either from the immediate family, even siblings aren't a perfect match, and much less perfect match are are donors from the general public. 
One of the really exciting aspects of stem cell biology that I've been working on for a number of years is making customized uh, patient-specific stem cells, being able to take their skin or their blood and reprogram them back to pluripotency, um, making essentially a toolkit, uh, a replacement set of parts uh, for any patient. Uh, we're particularly interested in blood. Uh, because we'd like to build upon that decades-long tradition of blood stem cell transplant. But it's a principle that can be applied across a lot of different diseases, and that's where modern stem cell biology and modern therapies really have to catch up, uh, because we've, we've had a head start in the blood, and we know it works, but we've got to apply similar principles so we can make stem cell products to treat a range of conditions like diabetes or Parkinson's uh, or many beyond that. So that so let's let's now we can kind of go into the lab a bit. So then the idea then is rather than going into the bone marrow, you can take the patient's skin or, or somatic cell, reprogram that, which we want to talk about in a little bit, um, and then kind of direct them into the hematopoietic stem cell. Is that correct? So you can have a pool of cells that come from the donor, from the actual patient you can put back in. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit where, we, where are we in the field of hematopoietic stem, uh, stem cell generation from pluripotent cells? And we talk about it a lot in the show. Joseph and I, we have some guests. And it seems that there has been this um, kind of some sort of like a roadblock, or I don't know if that's the right word, or some some hindrance to getting that cell, that 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 very naive cell that gives rise to all the blood lineages. Can you talk a little bit about that field and where we stand? That, that's right. So you've 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 identified the key issue in uh, blood stem cell biology when we uh, don't have a perfect match for a patient, uh, and that, that happens not infrequently. We'd like to be able to generate stem cells from their own cells, their own skin. Um, the other advantage is that if we have a patient with a genetic disease, let's say sickle cell anemia, really what would be optimal would be for us to make stem cells from their skin or their blood, be able to do the very precise gene repair, uh, the gene therapy, if you will, in the dish, and then generate blood stem cells and give them back a healthy hematopoietic system. It's been it's proven difficult. Um, we've been able to do it in the mouse. Uh, we can, through kind of synthetic biology, we can engineer transcription factors and direct the differentiation of mouse stem cells into blood stem cells that can actually engraft the entire uh, hematolymphoid and immune system of the mouse. It's proven more difficult in human, and we're still working hard. There have been a number of groups that have made a lot of advances. Uh, Shaheen Rafi's group recently done some very elegant studies where they've converted endothelial cells into hematopoietic lineage cells that seem to engraft and, and carry on some blood function. My own lab has taken a, a, a strategy which we've, we've been very excited by. When we differentiate either induced pluripotent or embryonic stem cells, these master cells of, uh, of the human body, we can generate a very particular type of blood cell, a myeloid cell, which is restricted in its potential. But we engineer transcription factors into that cell and re-specify it back to a more multipotent state. We've been able to generate uh, red blood cells and a variety of white blood cells, and now even 
lymphoid cells, cells of the immune system, using this strategy. We're very excited by it. We haven't yet achieved a fully functional, engraftable hematopoietic stem cell, but we think we're well on our way. Uh, and that's, that's our goal over the next couple of years. Yeah, I want to actually ask you about the reprogramming. And uh, I saw you have a Nature Biotech uh, sort of review on all the different methods. And there isn't a standardized method for reprogramming skin cells or blood cells. Is uh, to, I mean, do you think... Actually, I want to ask, what's your preference, uh, at least for the blood field? It seems like there's so many different ways and so many different starting cell. It, it, do you think the field's ever going to standardize and say, okay, it's this polycystronic or, you know, Sendai virus? Or which, which, is, which is the direction do you think that we should head in terms of the starter cell and uh, the reprogramming method? You're correct in pointing out that there are a number of different protocols and strategies for reprogramming. That paper you referenced is an effort really by several different laboratories, including the two major core laboratories at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, to compare notes, to look at all of our collective experience, which really comes from generating thousands of different reprogrammed cells. And what we concluded was, you know, there are many different ways to skin the cat. There are yeah. lots of different approaches which work. But for particular applications, certain advantages accrue to one or other of those approaches. We particularly employ uh, episomes, uh, mm. these plasmids that can be easily introduced either into blood cells or into fibroblasts, which are the two major starting cells that most labs uh, work with. And it's a, it's a reasonably robust and uh, quite efficient method. It's also very inexpensive. Mm. A separate method, which is now uh, practiced quite widely, is to use Sendai virus, uh, a preparation that affords very, very, very high infection efficiencies and therefore reprogramming efficiencies. But because it's it's really obtained commercially, it's quite expensive. So for some labs uh, who don't have the big budgets, they might prefer to use episomes, whereas other labs that or less resource constraint, might want to go for Sendai. But the point is, uh, both those strategies, as well as some of the other strategies that we review in that Nature Biotech paper, do work. The system's very, very robust. Um, and so it can be widely employed. Mm. What we're really waiting for, though, is the advances in technology for directed differentiation. Uh, lots of labs are, are working very diligently uh, whether it's to generate heart muscle cells, dopamine neurons, beta cells, or as in our, our uh, laboratory, blood cells. Uh, and, and we're seeing a lot of, of progress, uh, especially as, as highlighted at the recent ISSCR meeting. Uh, and I predict over the next three to five years, we're going to see a huge upswing in clinical translation as some of these cells are brought to bear on real clinical problems. Yeah, you know, I like to use the example for the audience of, uh, you know, stem cell differentiation as the recipe for the cake. And there are, like we said, we're talking here, there are different ways to make the dough uh, or the, the batter, if you will. But once you have the batter, it's how do you make the cake and how do you turn that into the cake? And some people might use more sugar than others. And that's, I think, where you're saying the optimization still stands, really, is trying to get to that endpoint cake where you have something that you can actually work with 
in this case for for patients. I want to transit. I want to move along. You, you brought up translation. We were at the uh, the meeting this year in Stockholm, and then previous in Vancouver. And I've been feeling a little more. Uh, kind of the the smell of translation in the air. You're hearing a lot more about some clinical trials that are ongoing. From someone like yourself, who's been in this field for a long time, been in the clinic, and all, do you feel that we're we're we're, we're you know, and then like you said, in the next five ten years, you're going to start to see kind of the fruits of the labor in the lab starting to come out into the clinic and translating. Are you starting to really feel that we're going to take stem cells from the bench to the bedside? I I am feeling the the momentum, no doubt. Uh, we already have the application of uh, retinal pigment epithelia derived either from embryonic stem cells, um, as has been done by uh, the, the company ACT, now known as Okata, um, as well as iPS cells, uh, Masayo Takahashi being the first person worldwide to actually deliver an iPS-derived cell product into a patient. Um, those both are being targeted against macular degeneration, a kind of blindness. Um, and I'm, I'm very encouraged. They're also teaching us that we can manufacture cells from these pluripotent stem cell sources, either ES or IPS. We don't seem to have major challenges of uh, residual teratoma or tumor-forming activity. So I think we're getting a little more comfortable with the safety <clears throat> And I do see, I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see a number of other cell products delivered. I'm working closely with a group in Japan led by Koji Ito and a company uh, in part sponsored by the Japanese government, a company called Mega Carrion, to deliver IPS-derived platelets. I think blood products are going to find their way into the clinic. You know, the current system for blood donation is incredibly cumbersome. It really requires altruistic donation from patients to roll up their sleeves and donate blood. That's incredibly unpredictable. Uh, you know, if we have a snowstorm in Boston, we run out of platelets. <laughs> I think in the future, we're going to be manufacturing platelets and red blood cells and maybe white blood cells and blood stem cells from ES and IPS cells. And we're going to replace the blood donor system so that we can have a more predictable and safer uh, source of blood. Are, are I these, see coming are, down are, the pike. Uh, I'm sorry. Cells. I was just wondering about the, uh, before you talk about the beta cells, are the platelets uh, that uh, you're going to be delivering, are these driven by transgene-directed uh, differentiation, or is it recombinant proteins or small molecules? Is there a concern, like, uh, by introducing more genes in the differentiation, is that is that an issue uh, with the differentiation? Yeah, you raise an important point. So the strategy that Koji Ito has discovered, and I think is uh, practical and feasible, is to use reversible, uh, reversible immortalization. Uh, that is, you introduce transgenes into these megakaryocyte progenitors, uh, and the transgenes can be switched on or off by addition of the antibiotic doxycycline. Mm. This allows a lot of advantages because you can very dramatically expand this immediate progenitor and then in a synchronized way get them to differentiate into platelets. Now you raise the appropriate concern that, well, you've got transgenes. Might that create a, a, a risk, a risk of tumorigenicity or the like? The advantage we have with blood products, and especially platelets and red blood cells, 
is we can irradiate them. They don't have to have a nucleus, and they, in fact, they shouldn't have a nucleus. Right. Um, yeah. They and and so we can irradiate them and deliver them as a as a product without any viable proliferating cells. That's going to give us, I think, a lot of comfort about their safety. Mm. But then, of course, ultimately, it'll also teach us the principles of cell manufacturers that when, if and when, we can achieve a blood stem cell, uh, we'll be able to manufacture it and, and deliver it to patients for a wider range of, of conditions like leukemia and genetic disease. Hey, George, that's uh, my vision. Uh, I just want to ask this question, and this is probably obviously a question where there's really no answer. If there was, it would be solved, but um, you would m- probably have insight. And why, what is the why is it so difficult for the hematopoietic stem cell from from a human pluripotent cell? Is you know is it is it is it just something in the culture? Is, is the hypothesis that something in the culture uh, dish is just not allowing for the acquisition of the fate? Is it you know are, are there inferences? Do, do people have insight as to really why? I mean, the mouse can do it. So is there is it something evolutionary that's 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 just so different that we don't really understand? Do, do you have any insight into what the what the problem could be as to why it's so difficult to ac- access this this primitive hematopoietic stem cell? Yeah, boy, if I really had deep <laughs> into the problem, I would have solved it. That's, exactly, that's, <laughs> why, that's why I figured. I'm not smart enough. I'm not smart enough. I mean, somebody else is going to figure this out, or, or we'll do it collectively as a community. Um, you know, the hematopoietic or blood-forming stem cell is, um, is evanescent. You know, it's, it's been virtually impossible to capture it in culture. It has this tendency to differentiate very quickly, and so it's been... It's been very slippery and hard to hold on to. A number of groups, um, the, uh, the the group from, from Novartis, uh, the Boitano paper that developed SR1, and uh, Guy Savageau's work on UM171, mm-hmm. small molecules, have really made a difference in that they, they do allow for some degree of self-renewal and expansion of blood stem cells and culture. I think those are really, really exciting advances. But if we can get better at maintaining blood stem cells and culture, I think we've got a ghost of a chance I see. to actually derive them from the matter, you know, from, from earlier uh, embryonic and, and IPS sources. And I I'm see. sorry, I, I interrupted like, you before when you were uh, you were about to move on to beta islet cells, which I think uh, is something we should talk about. Uh, wh- what were you going to say about that um, moving forward? I just think that's a really exciting area. You know, it, it, the principle is as being applied by many different groups uh, in different cell types, target cell types, the principles are all fairly common. We're all trying to take the lessons taught to us by decades of developmental biology, which has identified the the morphogens and the, the pathways that direct the embryo to form specific tissues. We try to recapitulate that in the Petri dish and that's been very productively done by, uh, you know, by the Melton Group and, and folks working uh, out of uh, Janssen and, and, uh, and Viasite, the, the biotechnology companies, to develop pancreatic progenitors and glucose-responsive insulin-producing beta cells. Really exciting work. I think uh, type 1 diabetes, which is fairly pure disease of autoimmune destruction of the beta cell, that is just 
crying out for a cell replacement therapy. Uh, and, and I think we're going to see some exciting developments in that area. But the same principles are being applied by groups trying to make cardiomyocytes, ES and IPS-derived cardiomyocytes, which are, are destroyed in a variety of, of uh, heart pathologies, uh, myocardial infarction being most prominent. Those cells don't regenerate. Um, you know, it's been controversial, but I think the predominance of evidence is there aren't uh, stem cells in the adult heart, and there isn't an easy way of reactivating division of existing cardiomyocytes. So you've got to go back to the embryonic sources. And folks like Chuck Murray are doing that really remarkably well and are positioning themselves for human trials over the next five years or so. Dopamine producing neurons, similar principles. I think Lauren Studer's done remarkably creative work to recapitulate embryonic development, make highly specified A9 midbrain dopaminergic neurons and prove in, in rat studies and, and primate studies that these cells will reverse models of Parkinsonism. I think we're headed to clinical intervention in that space. So across the whole spectrum of, of the cells I've mentioned and many I haven't, we're applying principles of developmental biology, we're making strides in, in directing specific target cells, and now we have to uh, undertake the difficult and challenging strategy of clinical translation. There may be barriers that you know, we, we cannot yet foresee and aren't predicted by our animal models. You know, I, I want to, and looking at the time, and I, I want to get to some of these things with you because um, someone of, with your breadth of knowledge of the field for so long, and it speaks on, on the um, you know, ethical things with stem cells and all this. So I'm curious, you know, still still today when I go out and I speak about my work or I speak about stem cells, there are still people that will raise their hand or still people that will say something negative about the field in terms of, you know, the ethical concerns and things like this. Now with this new, the news with Planned Parenthood and this fetal tissue and things like this, I just want to ask a general question, George, do you feel that the stem cell uh, arena research, the field is not, is, is kind of moved out of that kind of visceral stem cells, you know, we've kind of cleared a lot of these ethical debates, or do you still feel that, I mean, because I'm sure people in our audience listen, uh, and they're listening particularly to learn more about that aspect, you know, the invention of IPS technology reprogramming in a way kind of gets away from embryonic tissue, although we still need the gold standard to compare, but do you feel that when you go out and you talk or you're sitting on these panels, is there still a lot of concern about stem cells ethically uh, in terms of, you know, um, embryo, fetal tissue, things like this? Yeah, this is, a, this is an important issue and, and a complex one. Um, I do believe that the scientific advances of induced pluripotency have, uh, have, have in some sense um, satisfied some of the concerns, taken some of the heat off of the argument, um, and we've moved on. And Ultimately, if we can prove success, that is successful clinical translation of some of these products, uh, I think much of the earlier ethical concerns will evaporate even further. But I think you're, you're right. You made the point that we still do require a deeper understanding of human development and human embryonic stem cells are an important part of that. There's a renewed interest in understanding 
uh, different conditions under which you derive stem cells. It right. turns out that, you know, probably for the past, uh, you know, 15 years, we've been working largely with stem cells that aren't the equivalent of the mouse. They aren't pure, naive human stem cells. And only recently have groups started to understand how to isolate the this this new type of stem cell from human embryos. So there will be a continued need and a continued interest. The ISSCR has played a very important role in uh, establishing international guidelines, bringing scientists together to adopt consensus approaches that respect um, the need for really scrupulous ethical oversight of the research. Um, and I think it's proven over time that the, the benefits of stem cell research far outweigh the concerns that were raised early on. And I only hope in the future that even in the face of uh, perhaps a changed uh, administration in right. the United States, that these, these concerns don't uh, rear up again. Uh, because the science is essential, the clinical applications are are highly valuable, and it really justifies the research in the long run. I I guess lastly, before you know, I'm looking at the time, a couple more minutes. You know, we, we, I also look at there's a lot of you know tech, technology trends that happen within the field, like micro trends and IPS reprogramming, and all that was a major trend, and it has become now its own field. Uh, and then we've seen. A genetic modification like CRISPR and everything like that has become a big wave. People trying to modify genes to to kind of correct or introduce mutations and things like this. Um, do you see uh, kind of I don't know if you're kind of ahead of the curve. Do you see anything uh, new and exciting on the horizon that we could talk about? I know there's a a big uh, push and big kind of really exciting for this new kind of activate stem cells in vivo in the actual organism rather than try to take them out and engineer them and try to kind of in situ in vivo uh, turn stem cells into the lineage they want. I see that as a, as a big new field that's emerging and really exciting. Do you see any sort of trends emerging or a combination of techniques that you're excited for? Yeah. Well, you mentioned genome editing. CRISPR is the most exciting new technology to come along in my career since reprogramming and since PCR. Uh, wow. You guys aren't old enough to remember PCR, but I'll tell you, it, it, it was, I yeah. wish I was there when it came out because it must have been yeah. amazing when it came out. Yeah. I mean, it was the type of application that was easily reproduced in labs across the globe and, and was just, uh, it was like contagion. Every single lab <laughs> got infected by this. And I think right now CRISPR is doing the same. It's a technology which every lab uh, is is adopting and, and applying very, very productively and fruitfully. I, you you read the idea that uh, maybe we could learn how to manipulate stem cells in situ, in tissues. I think that's super exciting. But what I've gotten very excited by recently are strategies for synthetic biology. You know, we don't necessarily have to be constrained by the way, um, you know, natural processes produce tissues. We can engineer tissues. We can engineer cells. We can give them properties they might not even have in, in, uh, in normal physiology. And we can couple that to engineer the systems in vitro. I think the, the kind of emerging trend is uh, organ-on-a-chip, engineered organoids in vitro, being able to uh, you know, produce 
tissues and, and maybe even functional organoids that can be used translationally. Um, that's kind of where my lab is moving. I think, I think it's a very, very exciting trend that's going to have huge impact. Excellent. Yeah, so you heard yeah, it here really, first. really, really amazing, right? Yosef, if we read some of these stories, some of these things, I think it's like Anthony Atala, these guys, it's just really wild what they're, what they're doing. And, and uh, uh, Flora Vaccarino, don't forget she's got that new uh, paper on autism using organoids. So, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, 3D cultures and organizer are, are, are very cool, and, and uh, I hope – uh, the, a new wave because I, I, I'm excited to see where they take that because uh, we don't live in 2D, you know, so it's uh, yeah, right. yeah. it's cool. So, you know, um, I'm looking at the time. We're about 30 minutes now. And so we, you know, George, we, we mentioned to, to, to George in the beginning, we kind of put him on the spot. We didn't ask him in advance about a funny story. We like to ask our guests to give us a little funny story. I'm laughing because I'm remembering some stories that our guests come out and it's they're funny. Uh, so, George, uh, do you have a funny story we can share with the audience? Something from you as a professor, your training, or something like that 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 you that you thought was funny that might might uh, give the audience a little bit of a laugh? Yeah, well, you know, I think my trainees have a lot of funny stories. <laughs> just observing me, uh, and I was uh, recently sent an email by uh, Patrick Cahan, who's a fantastic senior postdoc, is moving on to his own laboratory at Hopkins, and apparently. He spent time writing down some of the odder things that I said in group meeting over the last few years. <laughs> and I'll, just, I'll just read a few of those that gave me a bit of a chuckle. Uh, apparently, he captured me saying, uh, I'd rather cuddle with a gerbil than a rat. <laughs> I don't know in what context I said that. That makes sense. I, I totally understand that. <laughs> <laughs> I did comment. I think that was when I was saying I, I didn't want rats uh, it, as as a as a research subject in our in our animal facility. Um, I spoke to a, I talked to a graduate student uh, and and commented after like really really having a hard time getting him to finish his work. Uh, I I said I'm glad you are asymptotically approaching a submission of your manuscript, um, and the manuscript has finally been submitted. Um, I said a couple of other crazy things, uh, ready. <laughs> like, uh, you know, Children's Hospital wanted me to uh, get more engaged in social media, uh, which I, you know, I'm still somewhat of a Philistine in that regard. And uh, I commented that I need a ghost tweeter <laughs> and the hospital tweeter. would hire me a ghost tweeter. Uh, and I, I you know I've got a few other. A ghost tweeter. That's good. I've never heard that before. Yeah. I might, I might use that. Listen, if, I, if there's a job a, position, I'd like to apply uh, as ghost yeah. tweeter. <laughs> I know. I, I do a lot with Jim Collins. Uh, I, I've published a number of papers with Jim, who's um, kind of a bioengineer, computational systems, synthetic biologist, very complementary to the work that we do. But I had one of his graduate students in my lab who, uh, at her first meeting, said, uh, well, I'm the only mammalian member of the lab, uh, <laughs> Collins Lab, and, and my comment back to that was, yeah, I, I understand they're all robots over the <laughs> engineering uh, uh, community. Uh, so great. those are those are some of the other things. Some of, some of the ones I can't come, I can't uh, oh, re- restate in uh, mixed company. Well, that's oh, great. That's a really nice, funny. a nice have- insight into your lab meetings there. So it sounds like a good time. <laughs> Yeah, what you really don't know, what your students or postdocs are writing down about you as you are trying to uh, guide a meeting. They're they're writing down all the funny things that you're saying. Yeah. Well, um, you know, oh, too, because I uh, my facial expressions oftentimes are uh, 
not something I'd necessarily want to <laughs> post it on YouTube. Well, you know, everybody in the audience, he is uh, Dr. George Daly. He's one of the best. You can go online. You can just put his name in, and you can read about more about his work, more about his lab work, uh, more about his efforts uh, in stem cells in general. And uh, he would rather cuddle with a gerbil uh, <laughs> than a rat, we've learned. So, uh, Dr. Daly, I, we really appreciate the time and being our 50th episode guest. And thank you so much for, for taking some of your morning out to talk to the oh, podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. And no problem, George. Have a good day. Promoting stem cells. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so there it is, episode fifty. Or that, that was a great interview. You know, from a, I like this global perspective. He's he's kind of hard to pigeonhole, you know, because he doesn't he, he does so many things. It's hard to be like, okay, tell us about this one paper and this pathway. It's like he's such a uh, prolific scientist, and you know, in terms of policy and everything, there's just so much to talk to George about that. Uh, I'm glad uh, we didn't pigeonhole him into. Yeah, one, he's one a, he's thing. a real he's a good thirty thousand foot guy. I mean, he does so much. He's he's in the clinic. He's nice in the lab. He he's been in the field forever, so he's good to ask these questions. That's why I want to get these big uh, researchers on. I want to you know we want to ask them more about uh, big picture topics because they can cover a lot a lot of stuff. So thank you to George. Um, you know, for that, thank you for Stem Cell Technologies for, for sponsoring the interview. And now we move to the rent portion oh. of the show. And Yosef, with his hate, growing list of hate, <laughs> presented with some options. And I just had this one that we're going to do today just happen to me again. And so uh, the rant today is about wobbly tables. Uh, um, sounds really mundane, really stupid. But do you know how annoying it is when you get to sit down with a group of people or you go on a date? And you sit down, and your table is just wobbling back and forth, and spilling water. I had a martini that was filled to the top with my olives in it, and I leaned left, and the thing spilled over the side. Oh man! And and a, and a martini, which is, could be like fourteen dollars, that's probably like a dollar fifty that just spilled <laughs> on the ta- table. So you know, and this is like costing ten percent of my drink. You would think that there would be a solution to the wobbly table by now, but I haven't come across anything. Yeah, they have these uh, table wedges in restaurants that people. People like you know wedge under there, but I, there's you know it's 2015. You'd think there'd be like some sort of universal solution to this. I know you can unscrew the bottom of certain tables, uh, you can uh, adjust the levels, but it seems like every other restaurant I go into has a wobbly table and they don't do anything about it. And it's I'm one of those people who can't just sit at a wobbly table. I'll lean on it with my elbow throughout the whole dinner just to keep it stable. And so, you know, Chris doesn't lose his dollar fifty worth of martini. I'll, I'll, I'm there for you, bro. I could I could help you out yeah, in man. that situation. It's but- messed up. Like it's messed <laughs> up. I feel like there's gotta be like a universal table that you can just kind of set the bottom. There was something on Shark Tank called the Table Jack where this guy said that he had the problem, the solution to this. The problem they and they didn't the the investors didn't buy in. One of the reasons was it wasn't adaptable to all tables, and that was the problem. Like he had it, it was specifically for a certain type of table. It was cool, it was a good concept, but it it wasn't feasible for where all tables. But you know, the there's that there's wobbly chairs, things that are you know uh, like what's up with the wobble? Yeah. We can fix wobble in DNA, but we can't fix it in a, in a table. <laughs> Uh, and I'm losing money on my drinks, and I actually complain. I I, I don't like to complain, 
But I said, I'm like, is it look? Is there any? You got like a like a piece of cardboard or something? And then they come over, you know, and they get down on the table and they prop it up and they're like, is that better? And you lean on it and it's a little better. So I mean, like, come on, twenty twenty first century, let's fix the wobbly table. Yeah, I know. My elbow's getting tired. My foot. Sometimes I'll place my foot on it. And I'm just like, I'm I, I, I'm like the stabilizer. I won't complain. I'll just sit there and be like. The I, I, I'm the stabilizer. So yeah, any uh, restaurant managers or uh, waiters listening to the podcast, um, fix those tables or order new ones, ones that are leveled and uh, don't do this or or are adjustable. So um, yeah, that's our RAM. We're sticking with it. Uh, so episode 50, down for the books, man. We did episode it. Episode 50, man. Nice yeah. job, Yos. 50 yeah. episodes. Thank you all, podcast audience, for continuing to listen. Stick with us for the next 50. We got some awesome things for you all. Sign up for the newsletter, stemcellpodcast.com. We will see you at 51. Yos, have a good week, my man. I'll talk right. to you soon. All right. Talk to you later. All right, man.